You look like you're getting ready to launch into another song there. Everybody was singing good tonight, so that would have been fine. This morning when I was talking, I you know, opened a message talking about that, that question that we often think about or that people ask us, and that is if God is good and uh, if he's all-powerful, then you know, why does he allow evil? And what, the answer that we gave this morning wasn't really the why, answer to the why question it was more the answer to the when question. Did you notice that? We, we really didn't answer the question, why would God allow evil? We just kind of went to the end and said, we know there's going to be an end to it. So tonight what I'd like to do is I like to help you. Now, I know that you guys are not, uh, for, you know, for the most part, new Christians. And so you, you would be in a capacity kind of in what I call the stage of life. This is flattering sounding. The sage stage. People expect wisdom out of you. Uh, You probably do have people that look to you, come to you for questions, people that you give guidance to, and they have questions about this. And so tonight what I'd like to do uh, is I'd like to talk to you uh, tonight about how to help someone answer the question, why does God allow evil? Maybe another way to put that would be like, if you go back to my illustration this morning, when I was at camp, um, and the young people ask the question, why, if God is good, and if he is all-powerful, then why does he help? What kinds of things do I tell them? That's what I'm going to give you tonight. Incidentally, we had two young men come this morning to my study, meet with deacons, uh, Thomas and William Wallace. William Wallace was in my study today. Um, and Thomas, Tom, William is seven today. I think Thomas is ten, but William is seven today. Uh, why am I telling you this? Well, I was at the Springs camp, which incidentally is where you guys met. Am I right about that? I was at the Springs this summer for my first opportunity to speak to a camp there. I was spoken to a retreat, but I spoke to senior high camp and actually didn't realize that we had junior age students from our own church that were there until I was opening my laptop and checking and somebody mentioned it on Facebook. And so I kind of looked out the window. I thought, we have, I'm speaking to senior high kids and there were junior kids a little cluster of junior age kids. So I left my room and went over and found them and they were playing carpet ball and had a good talk with them and got to do some things with them. And then a little bit later on um, that week, I felt a little tug on my heart to go over to the junior camp and they were having a big, you know, rowdy time in the chapel, like a bunch of uh, skits, you know how you do. And I wasn't much in the mood for that. I was going to speak later. I think it was on a Thursday night. So I thought, well, I'll let them all get in there and carry on and I'll sit on the outside and, uh, and just enjoy listening to him and sit out in the cool evening in the summer there and get ready for my chapel, which I would do down around a little lake, around a little river there uh, with, the, uh, with, the, with the fire. They, they put a boat on fire out in the river, go figure. And that was kind of neat. Anyway, so I was sitting there, and I noticed there was a little boy under a tree. Sitting there under a tree, and he was crying. And I realized it was our Thomas. I went over to him, and I said, what's wrong, buddy? And he said, they stole my stuff. I didn't know this, but he loves popcorn, and it was free popcorn night. So he got an extra big bag of free popcorn, and um, somebody he thought stole it from him. And it really hurt his feelings. And so I said, well, I can get you some more popcorn. I'll pull strings around here, and we'll find some popcorn. So I got a chance to talk to him for a while and found some popcorn. We found out later on that nobody had stolen his popcorn, that somebody had gone to change clothes behind his bed, pushed his bed out and pushed his bed over his popcorn so he couldn't find his popcorn. So it wasn't like that there were demonic, demon-possessed kids hiding in his popcorn. But 
we had a chance to talk to him, and it was later on that it was the next night that he came to know the Lord as his Savior. And I'm sure it was because I got him more popcorn. I was like, I'm looking for an assist on this one. But anyway, the, the Lord used his counselor and the, t- and the teachings. And on the way home, he told his dad, Dad, stories of the Bible are true. They're really true. He's going to get baptized soon. So isn't that sweet? And uh, that's just a happy. So, so there you are. In that context, you often talk to people. And I'm sure these are questions that you've had in your soul. And probably you've, you've answered. Uh, but they're questions that others have. And so let me just give you different, six different things I tell people from Scripture about how to help them understand why would God allow evil. Now, first of all, let me just say that we don't use philosophical and logical arguments primarily. We could do that. When I was a boy, I remember reading C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, where he, it's a, it's a collection of essays that really were initially radio addresses. And I remember that the, one of the ways he answered this question was, God allowed, he says it this way, I don't, you never hear me talk about this way. C.S. Lewis said, God allows man to have a free will. And if he allows the man to have a free will, he has to. In order for a man to sincerely love him, he has to choose. He, he says, you know, you didn't, you didn't win your wife by dragging her off by her hair. You wooed her, you won her. And God was powerful enough to drag us off by the hair. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted people who loved him. And so he wooed us. And to do that, he had to give us the option of saying no. And that was his logical argument towards what he would call free will, and that was interesting. But that's just a logical argument, and one philosophical argument can be answered with another philosophical argument. That's really not my intent tonight, but really to point you to the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures say about why God allows evil? It's a little bit like if you have a lion, you don't have to describe it. You don't have to defend it. What do you do? If you have a lion, what's the, what's the word here? You're supposed to know this. If you have a lion, you don't have to defend it. You don't have to describe it. You just have to let it out of the cage. That's it. Now you can write that down. Let, it, let the lion out of the cage. And so it is with the Bible. You know, people say, I don't believe the Bible. Just tell them the Bible anyway. It's like a very effective gun. Shoot them with it. You know, tell them the Bible because the Bible, because the, the Lord uses the word of God to speak to the deepest heart. So tell people biblical truth. You're not going to improve on biblical truth. Just tell them what the Bible says. Tell them what the Bible says. Tell them. So first of all, teach them that God cares for them. Teach them that God cares. Affirm that God cares for them. And you could go to a lot of places in the Scripture. One of the places I love to go is where it talks about God, our Heavenly Father, in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. I love that terminology. At chapter 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given you, it says. Um, what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone, or if he asks for fish, We'll give him a servant. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In this passage, it keeps saying, your Father knows you have need. Teach them that God cares for them. Tell them the stories of the fallen sparrow. And by the way, one of the things that you can do when people are wrestling, it's, it's not really so much philosophical. People are wired differently, but tell them, Embed the truth of God in the stories of the Bible. Stories are useful that way. Tell them stories. Why do I say this? That's what Jesus did. And you aren't going to improve. Your teaching methods aren't going to be better than Jesus. Jesus didn't just nail bald propositions to the wall. Jesus didn't give out truth like tax forms. Jesus embedded truth a little bit at a time in idiom, in stories, in proverbs, in embellished language. 
any Sunday school teacher worth her salt will tell you this, and that is tell the stories of the Bible. I have a friend who's a storyteller. His name is John Walsh. He's written a beautiful book on storytelling. He's a Christian storyteller. And he has categorized, I think, 380 or 360 or something stories of the Bible. Just think about what this is telling the stories of the Bible. And if somebody says, man, I know all the stories of the Bible, we'll start quizzing them a little bit. Ask them about the details of the stories of the Bible. I was with our young people the other night, and I was telling about the stories that are found. Tell me, what stories are found in Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16? Stories of what? Judges 13. I know this ahead of time because I studied it. Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16 are the stories of what judge? Samson, yeah, you got that, right? And there are more stories than the Delilah story. The Delilah story is, man, that's a great story, isn't it? But there come some pretty crazy stories. I told the young people, I said, if I was picking a movie, if I pick a movie, I want to have explosions in it, you know? And, and then I want to, to keep the ladies in the room, I want to have romance in it. And then I want it to have a feel-good ending. And I told the young people, I said, you know, here's the story of Samson. And the story of Samson, it certainly had explosions in it. He burned things and so forth. And it had romance in it, if you want to say, you know, kind of broken romances. But it didn't have a feel-good ending. Anyway, so I would say, you know, have a little cluster of stories that you can tell or read. And it would be a really great idea for you if you're going to talk with the young people. And I'll give you some of those little favorites that I tell. But the best ones are where? They're, they're just in the Bible. And so Jesus told this little bit of a story. He said, you know, when a bird falls to the ground, your heavenly father takes notice of it. So that I would hope that the people who love me, every time they see a fallen sparrow, they would think of the heavenly father. And you remember how he said, in, in, you have uh, an example in, in Matthew 10, 27, Jesus said, how much are sparrows? Remember this? It was two for a penny. And then in Luke, it says, how much are sparrows? And it's five for two pennies. Remember that? So it's like, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of beautiful poetry. It's like, so there's a free sparrow thrown in there. It's like sparrows sometimes are just like you throw one in for free. And yet there's so, they're of so little value compared to us. But our Heavenly Father notices when they fall to the ground. So he knows when you lost your softball. He knows when your girlfriend broke up with you. He cares when somebody treated you bad. Tell people that God cares about them. Tell them about a loving Heavenly Father that watches over their every need. So if you want to help somebody, first of all, tell them that. The Bible says in, in Psalm 56, 8, that he holds our tears in a bottle. Did you know there's a name for a bottle like that? Did you know that? Lacrimatory. It's the name for a bottle that you hold tears. I guess it's in, in ancient times a person went away uh, to war. They would, people would have these and they would, gather, they would hold their tears and they would show that when they came back, they wept for them. We literally have a way of showing, look, these are, or if a person wept like as a mourner, or even if they were a paid mourner, they would have a bottle of tears that they would hold to show that they, and Jesus, God says, I weep tears, and my tears in a bottle, he holds our tears in a bottle. That's this Psalm 56, 8, he, he watches over. Sometimes, so, you know, sometimes I will tell a story to young people about uh, a legend about the Indian brave. And I will say, you know, when a young man becomes a brave, he has to stay out all night alone. And if he's brave enough to stay out all night alone, he can become a brave. 
And so what would happen is a young man would stay out in the desert alone and he would hear the wild animals call and it would get cold and he would be afraid. But if he stayed out all night, when the sun rose in the morning, he would notice there would be a shadowy figure standing nearby. And as the sun came up, he realized his father was standing there all night. He wasn't really alone. And you may go through a dark night and a difficult time. And you may feel like you're completely alone. You might be afraid, but God cares about you. I always tell a person like that, that God cares about them. And he thinks about them. You can use Psalm 8, take them to Psalm 8 and show them the poetry of Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him? He, God, thinks about you. Take them to Psalm 139 and show them that when you awake, he's thinking about you. When you went to sleep and stopped thinking about him, he kept thinking about you. Teach them that God cares about them. Isn't it wonderful to have somebody who cares about you, who's thinking about you? If you have a good mom, you know, it's just like you have a good wife. You know, my wife, uh, I would often tell a story about that. My wife and I have a little favorite thing we like. Every once in a while, there's, a, there's a, some frozen yogurt they have over in Ann Arbor. It's called Pinkberry. Did you ever have that? Oh, my word, is it ever good. Lois knows that I love it. And more, on more than one occasion, this is like 45 minutes away from here, on more than one occasion, she's gotten a quart of that and put it on ice and brought it home for me. we gone through a lot of effort because she was just knowing that I would like that. We have a little saying in our home. If they, she calls you on the phone and says, where did you eat? And wherever you say it is, you ate. She'll say, that must be nice. She just, that's what we say. So the whole family does that. We go, where did you eat? And they might say Taco Bell. And then we go, oh, that must be nice. But Lois could go get Pinkberry, and I wouldn't expect her to put it on ice and bring it home for me. That'd be unreasonable for a man to, I would never expect that. I remember the last time she did that, standing there eating that, going, you know, it's really nice to have somebody that thinks about you. God says he thinks about you. Tell him that. Teach him that. Second thing, here's another thing. I try to teach them that everything in the world is for the glory of God. Everything in the world is for the glory of God. Where does it say that? First Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God's glory is the great aim of the entire universe. Whether they understand that yet or not isn't really important. Just say it. So when evil time things come, Remember the story of the man that was born blind? It's in John chapter 9. You remember that? Take your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 9. It's interesting because it jumps right into this story. It says, now Jesus passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. Disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. They gave him two options. Somebody sinned here. Why would this, why would it, how sad that a baby would be born and you would discover the baby was blind. Wouldn't a person who had a blind baby have every right to say to God, why, God, would you let this evil thing happen to me? I was looking forward to having a healthy baby, and my little baby boy's never going to be able to see. God, why are you, uh, why, you could have done that different. Why did you do that, God? And the disciples' conclusion was somebody sinned here, <laughs> right? That's not altogether wrong, because sometimes we do get, chastised because of our sin. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, which is interesting. I can understand the parents being born, but like the kid, are you kidding? When did he sin? Like, and Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but the works of God should be revealed in 
him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it's the day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He just said, I allowed this boy to be born blind so that I could come and give him his sight and I would be glorified. But until that happened, nobody would know why. You see, that's just one biblical example. God allows evil uh, to bring glory to himself. Why was this young man, Daniel, this choice young man, Daniel, taken and abused and ripped away from his mother's arm, from his family and from his loved ones and actually, you know, physically altered so that he would never be able to have children? How sad would that be? How many nights did Daniel go to sleep thinking, I will never have a son? How can I offer myself to a woman as a husband if I can't even have a son? That would have to go through his mind. It's a, it was a terrible thing that he was taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. These are bad people. And, and mutilated. And then, then brainwashed with uh, pagan teaching. But God was using Daniel. God had something in mind to glorify himself through Daniel's life. Am I right? And you see, you see, teach them that everything in the world is for the glory of God. You remember me telling the story about a man who just was grieved because of what his son was going through, these terrible things his son was going through. And he just kept saying, God, if you could put me, me through those things and release my son, and why would you let my son go through this? And, he, and night after night, he couldn't sleep at night because he kept praying, God, why are you letting my son go through such painful things? things. And then finally, it's almost like the Lord told him, I have to take him through what I'm taking him through to get him where I'm taking him and to do what I'm doing in his life. And then the man could go to sleep because he realized that God was at work in his son's life. And so Elizabeth Elliot one time said, affliction is the good shepherd's black dog. Affliction it's the good shepherd's black dog. I like that because I've seen sheepdogs work, and most of them, the good ones are what? They're border collies and are what? They're black. And they're smart. They say there's, I know your little Fido is really smart, but they say border collies are the smartest dogs. And it's amazing to watch them work. And affliction works. God uses the black dog of affliction with the sheep that he loves to take him to the pastures where he's going to feed them. I, I would recommend that to see that God, to teach them that everything in the world is for the glory of God, have them read Christian biographies, biographies of great people that went through. The reason the stories are interesting is because of the opposition that the people faced, because of the difficulty that they went through. Why do we read about through gates of pearly splendor the, the story of Jim Elliot? He died. He died. He had a widow that had to raise a daughter, Valerie, alone who's a Presbyterian pastor's wife today. Godly woman. Why? Why do we read that? Have him read that. Sometimes I'll counsel with a man who's been through difficulty and he feels like he's been dealt a bad hand by God. Why did God deal me a bad hand? Remember a guy telling me that one. I just felt like I got dealt a really bad hand. Let me tell you about my life. And he starts going through. It really does sound bad. And then I say to him, well, let's just do this for the next few weeks. Let's study the people in the Bible that God powerfully used, like Job, Daniel, Paul, Esther, Ruth, David Solomon, Moses, Jacob. 
What do you find? That God's, you study God's sovereignty in their life, that God was going to glorify himself in their life and through their troubles and through their trials and through their difficulties. So number one, teach them that God cares. Number two, teach them everything in the world is for the glory of God. Get them to live for the glory of God. Number three, teach them the virtue of God's patience. We mentioned this this morning. Um, let's go back to that passage in Second Peter, and you might show them this passage in Second in Peter. Often you can say to a person that's talking to you, if you weren't going through trouble, would you be talking to me right now? I often will tell people that. You know, my, a man, I remember a dear man, his, his wife left him, and he was cruel, and he was unkind, and he was thoughtless to her for years, and finally she gave up and left him. And then he got saved. <laughs> and then he sat on the first pew and cried every Sunday because his heart was broken. And every Sunday, why did my wife leave me? I wanted to say, other than that you were creepy and mean and you kicked the dog and that you were a bad husband. And, you know, other than that, you know, I, I didn't say that stuff to him. I said, well, would you have ever come to talk to me and would you ever have gotten saved if this hadn't happened to you? He goes, never. I go, well, then you can thank the Lord your wife left you. <laughs> I know you're thinking about that. Like, wait a minute. Can pastors say that? Are they allowed to say that? Well, you know. Listen to Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, this is the part I referred to this morning but didn't read. Beloved, this is verse 8. Beloved, don't think it's, don't forget this one thing. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. In other words, God sees time differently than we do because he sees eternity is in his scope and we don't. And so that's a huge difference. And we'll get into that later. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness. He's not slothful. He hasn't forgotten. But he is what? He's what? He's that's, that's a virtue. He's long-suffering. He's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. It might be that the problem that the person is having is chastisement because of their sin. God is mercifully chastising them to produce holiness in them, right? So that's one time. Look, and, and, uh, and then in, in Jude 1... Uh, there's only one chapter in Jude, so I said Jude, Jude, Jude uh, verse 18. They told you there would be mockers in the last time, walking according to their own lusts, sensual persons, causing divisions, not having the Spirit. Same as Second Peter chapter 3, mockers in the last time, scoffers, walking after their own lusts, saying, where's the promise of His coming? Things have continued from the beginning, even as they have now. Tell those people, God is being patient with you. The guy who, you know, all the stories about somebody who gets up on his desk and says, you know, if there is a God, strike me dead right now. It's like, you're not going, you're, you are not, you're, you're a pipsqueak and you're not going to exhaust God's wonderful patience with your behavior. But one day you, he will, you know, pour out judgment on you unless you, uh, you repent. So teach them the virtue of God's patience. Just tell them, kind of like what I said today, when were you born? You know, when they tell you when you, they were born, say, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come back before that? Aren't you glad he waited for you? Think about that. Or if they're not saved, say, you know, you should be glad that he's being patient with you. Your heart could stop. The older people get, the more effective this argument is. <laughs> Am I right? Amen? Right? Because when you're young, you're like, you're invincible. When you're like our age, you think about that every day. I'm taking the blood pressure pill now, you know, because I don't want to die. Yeah. Because I could die. Doctor tells me that every time I see him, you know, kind of in vague, euphemistic terms. But he basically is telling you, you're not going to last. <laughs> Let's get off that subject. All right. 
So that's number, number three right now. Number four, you got, I'm convinced, Pastor, just stop. Number four, teach them God compensates for temporal loss. God can exchange an eternal gift for a temporal loss. You know, there are a lot of places in the Bible that talk about this. Look in 2 Corinthians. This is a favorite of mine. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. By the way, you can illustrate these from your own life. Illustrate this stuff from your own life. That's powerful. In 2 Corinthians 4, you know, we have this ministry. We receive mercy. We don't lose heart. In other words, since we're gospel preachers, we're, we're, we, don't, we don't get discouraged. Um, and then in verse 16, it says, you know, we don't lose heart, even though our outward man's perishing, because our inward man's being renewed day by day. Isn't that good? Aren't you glad? You know, I've told you before, it's a mercy that you look in the mirror and, you know, you're getting older. It's it, it, it gradually because it reminds you, this isn't all there is to it. Develop the inner person. The inner person can be growing. Hey, the brain, how does it work? Is it like a hard drive? You get it full and it stops working? Or is it like a muscle? The more you use it, the better it works. Which is it? I was talking to somebody I won't name who's in the, in the, in the room right now and works in a church office. And her name isn't B. And, um, and I was saying to her, get it? If you're really smart, you know who that was. And, I, and she was saying, I think my hard drive just filled up. I go, no, it's a muscle. It's not a hard drive. It's like you can put more and more and more in and you get smarter and smarter and you use it. And that's, I'm hoping that what I said was true. You know, it's not like a heart, it's like my hard drive's full, you know, now I'm slowing down, you know? Well, that's, but even though eventually our minds are going to stop, you know, brain waves are going to cease altogether. But our spirit will never die. Spirit will never die. So that's okay. Develop the inner man, the inner woman, the inner person. Let's be sweet old people, right? Let's be a church full of sweet old people. If we got to be old, let's be sweet old people. But realize that God compensates for temporal loss. Our outward man is perishing. Our inward man is being renewed day by day. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What does that look like? I don't know. It's going to be good, though. We, look on, we don't look on things that are seen. We look on things that are not seen. We don't, have, we don't hitch our wagon to our temporal thing, to, but to God's eternal purposes. And so we realize he can compensate. And this can happen in, in maybe just in three different ways, now and forever. It can happen now and forever. Like Daniel, right? He was physically mutilated, but spiritually strong. Isn't that interesting? One of the sisters in our church was showing me picture of her grandchildren. And then she said, this one is the one with the trouble. She pointed to one and that has a terrible affliction. And just taking a guess, I said, does she have a specially, does she have an especially acute spirituality about her? She goes, yes. How did you know that? And I'm like, that's the way God compensates. You know, if you can, if you go through some physical, God is willing to compensate you spiritually in a greater way. So keep your eye on people that have been through heartache. You know, God can, if he, if they allow him. So, so what was then with Daniel? He's the spirit of the holy gods is upon you. I love to read in the Bible where people who are lost and don't have good theology identify the Holy Spirit in people, even though they aren't even saved, even though the person that's identifying the spirit in somebody else isn't even saved. But they, I'm reading in Genesis and it's like, then they saw that the blessing of the Lord was on them. And everything that he did, his hand was, God blessed him. I was reading this week and just going, God, would you make my life like that? You know, whatever it costs, make me a blessing, God. I know it's a tiny, 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 tiny little affliction. But I have a little something, you know, that, that causes me physical, um, 
difficult. It's very, very small. But, but, but I think one of the things I think is that it's made me a lot more sympathetic pastor. I notice when people are not walking well. I notice when, you know, I wonder when I look at people, I wonder if they slept through the night or if they had pain. Well, I never used to think that when I was younger and I didn't have that problem. Now I think God's making me a better pastor. I said, God, could, I have, could we have done that without me having this problem? He probably said, no, Ken, you wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked like that. So he compensates now, but he can compensate forever, right? So we could take away something in this life and give us something that lasts forever. I mean, how good would that be, right? So that's another reason. Um, in Psalm 73, remember, you look at the person that has it all. You know, they're that one that has that big fancy house that faces the water. And you're thinking, how in the world can they even pay the light bill? And then God has blessed them. And they, I bet they don't go to church on Super Bowl night. There, I said it, you know. Like us, faithful Christians, you know, they're pagans, you know, carrying on. And then you like that. And he's like, that's their mansion now. You haven't seen yours yet. I'll show you around. <laughs> We went to the wedding where Wesley and Dylan were married, and they were married in the house owned by her grandparents, and it was palatial, like it was like a hacienda. It was like it was a horse farm play. All the places in this place were people they could own horses. You couldn't own any other animals. You could own horses. It was really beautiful. And they said, "Well, you're going to stay there. You, you and Lois are going to stay there, and hope you, you you." And they and they showed us a video of the house. It was when a realtor was showing this house off. He's just walking through room after room in this palatial home. And we were, I was just thinking to myself, I wouldn't want to have to pay the heat bill of a house like that or the taxes of a house like that. Thank you very much. But God says to us every once in a while, let me show you around your eternal home. I has not seen, neither has ear heard, neither is under the heart of man. I'm going to compensate in this life, spiritually, and in the next life, forever and forever and forever and forever. And they said it called an eternal weight of glory. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's got to be good. An eternal weight of glory. I got to believe that it corresponds with our appetites that God has given to us. Like, like those little, you know, have those appetites when you're kind of like, uh, the other day I was telling Lois and I were talking about, I don't yammer on too long here. We are talking about how when the kids were little, what, we're, we're, we're older now, we like, like to stay home as much as possible. When we were younger, like, we're just running all the time. When the kids were little, we lived 45 minutes from the Ohio Amish country. And I know that you've been through Ohio on 75, and you don't think it's pretty. But the Ohio Amish country is a beautiful place. This rolling, beautiful country is kind of where my people were originally from on the paternal side. And we would drive through the countryside on a day off, you know, just so pretty and so uh, beautiful and bucolic. And, and God, and there's sort of like this thing in you that when you see something like that, you know, you just think, what is it about that that just, you know, when I look on Lake Michigan or I see a mountain or the, or the Grand Canyon, I'm just like, what is that? That's the appetite that God has given us for the places that he's created that we're going to be able to enjoy forever and forever and forever. Isn't that amazing? Compensation. Compensate. He co- teach them that God compensates. Teach them that God's patient. Teach them that he's good. Teach them that he does all for the glory of God. Let me say it in the order that I said it. Teach them that God cares. Teach them that God does what he does for his own glory. Teach them that God is, pa- is patient with us. That's why he's, he's going to do it. going to bring his kingdom, but, but he's being patient for others to be saved. Teach them that God compensates for our temporal losses. Five, teach them that God uses evil to accomplish good. 
Teach them that God uses evil. That's how wonderful, that's how he glorifies himself. He takes the worst thing that the devil can deal or the mistakes that people make or the willful, hateful things that people do, and he can make good come from them. When I speak with the young people, this is always where I want to go with them. And I let the tension hang in the air a lot. And we talk about that. I remember thinking about that, you know, why that I suffered certain things when I was a kid that were just, you know, bad. And I just often think about that. I know this just really sounds silly, but it seemed like every time I got a dog, he got killed. And I loved my dogs and they would get killed. I know you're going to laugh and you're going to think I'm not being serious. But one night I was up at camp and I told a story when my dog's dying and everybody just went like this. They just leaned into that and they listened. You could hear a pin drop in the house. It was like the storyteller moment. They're like, and I told them, it was like, and the people would come to me after, like, that was such a sad, that was really captivating as I told them about God's sovereignty and this little dog of mine dying. And then I was laying on my bunk thinking, that's what it was all about. God knew I was going to be a camp speaker. So he let my, I don't know about that. But I will tell you that when I tell the skipper, the missionary dog, you got a lot of people listening to that story. God lets us go through stuff. And, you know, somebody said, don't waste your sorrows. Realize that God is letting you go through things to make a star witness out of you. And to be a star witness, you have to have stories to tell. And so, um, anyway, tell, tell them that God compensates and tell them that God accomplishes good out of evil. And then go to the cross with that, right? So what I always do when I talk to somebody like that is I'll say to them, you realize that God takes bad things and he makes good things out of them. And then I, and then I will often say, you've heard me do this, but I'm telling you again so that you'll remember it and you can use it. And that is say to them, what's the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the world? Sometimes a kid will say the Holocaust, and I would say Israel is the result of the Holocaust politically. You know? but, but no, that was worse than the Holocaust. What's the greatest injustice that ever happened? What am I driving at? The cross. Yeah, Jesus. They killed the sinless Son of God, the loving, giving, healing, demon casting out, the one who made everything. They tortured him and they killed him. That was just so evil. That was the worst thing that ever happened in the whole wide world. And I like stay there. And sometimes I describe the torture and the crucifixion and I tell the story. I've never, it's never failed that when I describe the cross, the room gets quiet. There's something about that story. People don't talk while you're talking about what Jesus did on the cross. And, and they say, that's, that was evil. That was wrong. Imagine his mother standing there watching them torture her own son. How could you do that? And imagine him gasping out, you know, take care of my mother. And then he, and then he, he died. How dark. And a cloud came over and it was dark for three hours like it was nighttime. And the earth shook and opened up. It was, and then what's the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the world? When Jesus died on the cross. So God, Satan, the devils didn't know it or they wouldn't have killed him. They would have inspired the people who killed Jesus. They didn't know. Principalities didn't know. And so then the, the worst thing in the world. So when you say, how could, where was God? And what was he doing when I cried out to him? Why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you helping? It's like, God isn't done with you yet. He's just getting started with you. Wait till you see the good things that he has. You won't see it now, but when you look back, you will. So when you're driving along in the nighttime and you're saying, God, where, where are you? It's like when you cross through the, when you cross through the, the, the when you 
pass through the, the way of the cross and you're on that, and then you'll have a perspective that when you look back, you'll see what God was doing in your life. You'll see it then. You'll see that how God put the appetites in your life for what you have. And, and so teach them that God is able to take evil. And you know a passage in, in, in Romans 8, 18. Uh, this is so powerful. I don't know how you improve on this. You can take them to Romans 8, 18 and show them um, that... In Second Peter, by the way, about how suffering accomplishes good, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And it's not far until you get to that um, the golden chain of salvation, right? Which is Romans eight twenty eight twenty nine, the golden chain. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And, and who he predestined, he called, who he called, he justified, who he justified, he glorified. What's God's purpose? That it would be conformed to the image of his son and ultimately glorified. That's God's purpose. So everything works toward that end for those who love God. So you say it, you're saying it to them, not just in some kind of shadowy, inspirational way, you know, well, good will come from this. That's not, that's not the best way to do that. And by the way, if somebody's really suffering, save the, the Romans 8.28 for a minute and just go be with them and grieve with them and sit with them. We had a family member, we had a church family member whose uh, nephew and his wife brought a baby to... <laughs> they lost their baby, okay? So let's not talk about that anymore. But then they called me on the phone, what do we say, you know? So I said, well, go be with them and don't say much yet. Weep with those who weep because some things you just, if that happens to us, how could you talk about it? What could somebody say that would make that right? It just wouldn't. You just have to go be with them and just feel the sorrow in the room and the heartache and the fallenness and the sadness of that. Just sit with them and there will, there will come a time when they're searching for answers perhaps that would be appropriate to help them to understand, to try to help them to understand God's purposes. And, and let, me, let me tell you four things to ask. Teach the person to ask these four things. When something bad happens to them, like they've been sexually abused or they were neglected by their parent or their dad took his life or their dad's, you know, hit one camp, this or one small camp, dad took his life that year on a Sunday morning when he was supposed to show up to preach in church. And the kid's senior year has been ruined and the rest of his life has been one girl sitting there. Her dad's a professor at the college where she goes to and he decided to take up with a girl in the college and carry that affair on in front of her and divorce her mom her senior year of college. These are kids that are still clinging to their faith in Christ, which their parents affirm, right? And then there's the ones who don't even have a, you know, family. And so what do, what do you tell kids like that? You say, well, this I know that if God allowed his son to go through great evil and good came from it, then what he's allowed for you to go through, great good can come from it. You, and so here are four questions to ask. I said, ask these four questions according to Romans 8, 28, 29. Number one, why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow this to happen? 
Start a list, start a journal. Why God allowed this to happen. Assuming that God is good, he's doing everything for his glory. He cares about us and he knows about us. He wants to make a star witness of us. Why did God let this happen? Get them thinking about that. Why did God let this happen? The story that I, some of you remember about the fellow that was on his way to Russia to be a missionary. His little boy was killed and, and he couldn't understand. And a, and a Christian leader said to him, you know, the Russian people respond to tragedy And when you tell them about the great tragedy that happened to you, God will give you their heart. And then you can bring others with you and you can go be with your boy again. Well, I don't know, you know, but that might have been a help to them to think, why did God let it happen for two? Number two, what qualities of Christ like is he forming in me that we would be conformed to the image of his son? So what qualities of Christ likeness might God be forming in you through this? I think I went through some things as a kid that made me merciful. That I wouldn't be merciful. Sometimes people tell me I'm not merciful. I mean, you should have been through what I went through. You would be merciful to people. You wouldn't be able. I can't watch somebody. I can't watch little kids on the street. One kid picking on another without um, without great empathy. You know, I because uh, I I, uh, I know how that kid feels. I, I've been right there. You know, and I'm you know delivered from that and healed completely from that and. I think. And then other than a bit of a twitch. And then number three, who can I help with what he's teaching me? Who can I help? This is the star witness part. Who can I help? There's going to be somebody that comes along someday. You say, well, why would God let me go through this? Do you realize how many other girls are going through that? And then you could help them. Would you like to help them? Would you like to help them if you said, if God took you through something and then he gave you spiritual power as a result of it, and then he gave you a ministry as a result of it, would you be willing to do that? If he said to you, I'm going to take you through something very hard, but I'm going to give you spiritual power, and then I'm going to give you a ministry as a result of it, would you ask God, okay, Lord, I will do that, because that's what he will call you to do. And then number four, how can I glorify God in this? Some things are just so awful. You know, you think, what's, what's going on here? And, and as the last knot in the rope, it's just probably good to say, God, I would just glorify you until I can't talk anymore. Then you can explain this to me when I get to heaven. I'm going to be faithful to you until my last breath, even if I understand what you're doing, because what you're doing might not show up until after I am gone. But I'm going to glorify you. I, I'm going to glorify you. We know this what the scriptures say, so teach them that. That number one, ask them, Ask them to ask themselves the question, why did God let it happen? Number two, what qualities of Christ like this is he forming in me? Number three, who can I help with what he's teaching me? Number four, how can I glorify God in this circumstance? Take them to the story of Joseph, which is rife with the sovereignty of God. And, you know, God meant it, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. A statement of God's sovereignty. Jacob, his father, saying, all these things are against me. The very same circumstances, Jacob is kind of having a pity party that day, and rightfully so, I suppose, because everything's against me. What he didn't know is everything is about to come to fulfillment. And, and Joseph there says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's a great statement of God's sovereignty. That's a story that you can tell. And, uh, and by the way, Thomas said he got saved the night that they told him the story of Joseph. And he recited that to his dad on the way home from camp and said, God let something bad happen to him, but he was doing something. He got that. That just captured his heart. So tell them the stories of God. They're powerful. Number six, teach them to trust the character of God. We went over this the other night, so I won't belabor it. But just a couple things to remind you. Remember that we went to Job and we said, how did God answer Job? And it's like he really didn't answer him. You know, and Job, like, why did you let this happen? Job's answer is basically, I'm God and I created everything. Where were you when I did that anyway? 
And he literally does not answer him. And Job knows now, but he didn't know until he died, right? Isn't that interesting? And that's the, the same way the question is answered. I'm reviewing here, but the same way the question is answered in Romans 9. You know, it's talking about the sovereignty of God. And the natural question is, well, if God is choosing people, how then could people be guilty? You know, how could Pharaoh be guilty? You keep reading, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. Well, I think there's a logical explanation that Pharaoh hardened his heart so much that God said, I've turned you over to yourself, but it continually says, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. There's just this mystery of the sovereignty of God in the Bible. We all arm wrestle with that, you know, right? And we can talk about that. We can argue about that. We can have fun thinking about the greatness of God and the sovereignty of God. But, but it's enough to say that when that question is asked in Romans chapter 9, the answer is, who are you to ask questions of, you're the clay and I'm the potter, and who are you to ask questions of me like that? And it comes down to that, to this person that's gone through trouble or this young person or this older cynical person is like, are you going to resist God until you face his judgment? Or are you going to yield to God and believe that he is good and that he has good purposes? It comes down to that. Because the greatest sin isn't some egregious thing that we do in drunkenness or immorality. It's running our own life. It, looks, it doesn't look so bad. It's being the boss of our own life. That's what takes everybody to hell. And... and, and um, I often tell people the story, and you can ask me later for details on this, about the grandfather walking with his boy. Some remember me telling the story, and they're, and they're out late at night, and the sun is going down. The boy wants to go home, and the grandfather says, we don't need to go home right away. And the boy says, we need to go home right away. And the grandfather says, why? And the boy says, because it's getting dark, and I don't know the way home. And the grandfather says, you don't have to know the way home. You just have to put your hand in my hand. As long as you're with me, you don't have to know the way home. This is what we're saying. You don't have to know all about God. You just have to know God and trust him with your questions. He knows the way home. You just stay with him. That's what he wants. I like to tell the story of Bailey's bike, the boy who wanted a bike. This was Bailey Smith, the great Southern Baptist preacher. Years ago, I got an ear for stories like this. I've told the story a hundred times. I won't tell you the long version, although you, I probably should because it's such a great story. But the short version is Bailey Smith, when he was a boy, wanted a new bike. Can you rest? How many of you remember me telling this story? It's been a while since I told it, a couple of years. I tell that camp sometimes with kids. Bailey wanted a new bike, and his dad wouldn't buy it for him. He had an old ratty bike, and every Saturday he would go, and he would ask for parts for his bike. His dad wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it. One day, he decides he's not going to talk to his dad anymore. He doesn't talk to his dad. Comes home from school that night. His dad's not on the porch where he normally would be, reading the paper. He says, this is weird. He walks in, and, and he looks on the kitchen floor. His dad's down on the kitchen floor on one knee. He's putting a new bike together. He says, don't you realize that, son, every, every time we were going to that store, I was paying payments on your bike. You see how powerful a story that tells like God knows what you need and he loves you. He knows your every need and your every desire and he's given you something bigger than what you are asking him for. <laughs> and a little story I love to tell about the boy who went to the candy store and he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't reach in. He waited, he put his hands out, he waited till the proprietor put candy in his hands. His dad asked him why, he said, because his hands are bigger than mine. I love to tell that story. I love to tell the story, and I'm almost done. I love to tell a story about our girl, Heidi, who God let this happen. You know, I, he put it on my heart to call for her one day, and she didn't come. She's on the plane on the other side of the barn, and she didn't come. She didn't come. When she came, she was injured, and we, she had her head split open, and we took her, and they had had to kind of look at her, put her back, kind of put, put her back together. And then I asked her if she heard me call and she said she did, but it was, 
It was before she got hurt, but she didn't come right away. And I said, well, you know, if you'd have come right away, I'll tell that story frequently. Heidi, I told that story recently at a couple years ago at a father-daughter retreat. She was there and she said, I, I never wanted to tell you this. We're driving the Jeep home and she's a woman now with two babies. She's, we're driving the Jeep home. She's dad, I never wanted to tell you this, but she said, I heard you calling my name, but I wanted to go over there to the corn crib first. And Holly warned me, <laughs> the older sister, you know, didn't you hear dad calling you? And I have like warned hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids. The heavenly father, he's, he cares about you. When he calls, he's got something good for you. Come the first time he calls. I've gotten to tell that. Come the first time he calls. And so um, sometimes somebody's going to have this antagonistic, cynical, I hate God, and I've dug in against him attitude, proof, like be careful that you push past the bravado of that. Um, You know, to a person like that, you might probe, you know, gently about the hurts that they've had and talk about those for a while, or or you might just just warn them of the judgment of God, you know. Um, but there are going to be people who are really are wrestling with that because they've been hurt in a deep and terrible way. And uh, so that's here in the church. So a lot of times, if I mention that this morning, I get a text, help me with that, Pastor. Because they, they've been hurt in a really, really, really bad way. And, um, and so there you are. There you have an opportunity to use some of the, those are some of the things that you could use to share talking points or stories or biblical arguments biblical truths that you could help them to understand. Uh, and, and when you do that, I'll just tell you this one more thing. And when you do that, remember, it's not your words, it's not your logic, it's not your persuasiveness, it's not the tear-jerking ability of your stories. It's not that. It's the truth of God that has power. You know how it is? You're like I am. Nobody's going to talk you into doing something. Nobody's going to force you to do something, right? You're a Red-blooded American, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do. I'm the same way, right? Like, you're not going to force me to do something. I'll suffer before I let you force me to do it. That's the way we are, right? We're that way. We're probably all that way. That's the way people are. They, they make good decisions because they came to the, they, they, or because something happened, like the sister this morning who's resisted her truth teaching growing up and all the Bible schools that she went to and all the Sunday school classes that she went to and her mother's uh, testimony and her sister and then her brother's testimony and then she got involved in a marriage that was troubled and then she's now broken hearted and in depression and having an she told me I could say this having an eating disorder and at the end of herself and somebody shows some of you watched that movie didn't you and you said that's corny how many of you said that's corny you said yes you did you said it's a b-grade Christian movie and it's corny. I know some of you sophisticated Christians, you said that. Yes, you did. You're not admitting it now, you know, but why wasn't that corny to her? She's hurting so bad. It was a good movie too, but it was because she was hurting so bad. Her heart was open to it. And when they, so sometimes you give people the truth and then wait for them to go through a needy time. And then, okay, was that helpful to you? I hope so. God bless each of you. Let's pray. And then I'll dismiss you tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for the the dear ones that came. I, I think tonight, um, we, we, we especially wanted to say to you, you're more important to us than anything, Lord, and we love you. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you would take these ideas that are so beautiful in your word, these truths and passages, and give us somebody to 
teach the truth of God to them and set them free and help them to understand your great purposes in the world and your great love for us and for them, uh, that they would be eternally yours and uh, help us to help our loved ones and our children, our young people in our church as they wrestle with these uh, questions that come up, especially in the, in the uh, skeptical, cynical, uh, rebellious age in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good night.